0: By the look on your face, it seems as though you had assumed that I would only be present in your life for some time, as if I would appear in your first rotation and be gone for the next. Well, I'm back, and you better have read your dermatology, because I'm going to crawl inside your head and pimp you until your cranium implodes, rendering your brain into a pink mist and forever ridding our field of your incompetence. Hmm. Welcome to the GrenZone, dissecting dermatology differently. Here is your host, Dr. Logan Kolb.
1: All right, thanks again for listening in. I'm really excited about today's episode as we'll be going over an incredibly important bread and butter topic in dermatology. We're talking about acne. I'm sure there are plenty of listeners out there wanting to click to the next episode because they think they know acne, but acne isn't simple. When should you initiate systemic treatment? When should you start isotretinoin? Does that isotretinoin patient need prednisone? Does this six-year-old kid with acne need an endocrinology workup? If you can answer these questions with confidence, then fine, sit this one out. But for the rest of us, there is a lot to cover on acne, so much that we'll dedicate two episodes to it. As we all know, it is very common, affecting nearly nine out of ten teenagers and young adults. It has a profound psychosocial impact on affected patients as well. As if the teenage years weren't tough enough, add on acne that puts patients at a higher risk of social isolation, depression, anxiety, and even a higher risk of suicidal ideation. And is all of this limited to the teen years? Nope. One in three women in their 30s and one in five men in their 30s battle acne as well. So before we jump into a good discussion on acne, I must mention our disclaimer. This episode is meant for educational and informational purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Nor does this episode represent the views of Orange Park Medical Center, Olmsted Medical Center, or their affiliates.
0: All right, if you want to talk treatment, you're going to have to talk pathogenesis. What are the four main contributing factors leading to an acne lesion?
1: I usually like to discuss pathogenesis alongside treatment, but since understanding acne pathogenesis is crucial for understanding pretty much everything about it, this is where we'll start. When looking strictly at the skin, the four main contributing factors for acne are abnormal keratinization, excess sebum production, Propionibacterium acnes overgrowth, and inflammation. It's like a four-piece metal band whose concerts get really out of control.
0: I'm Sticky Cells, and I'm Sebum, I'm P. Acne, and I'm Inflammation, and we are Acne Inflammica!
1: (laughs) Again, the four main contributing factors for acne are abnormal keratinization, excess sebum production, P. Acne's bacterial overgrowth, and inflammation. I like to think of acne pathogenesis in sequence, so I'll explain it to you the same way I explain it to patients. Number one, your skin cells are proliferating too quickly and don't slough off the way they should. In acne-prone skin, these cells are more cohesive, they're more sticky, so they stick together and clog up your pores. Then number two, the joys of puberty bring about more oil production as your hormones wake up. And this oil gets trapped under these clogged pores along with some of those sticky cells, and that starts the process of a pimple. Then you have number three, P. acnes, which is a bacteria that is on everyone's skin but it loves to feast on these oils, which leads to number four, inflammation, when your body notices the bacteria and makes your pimples red, hot, swollen, and tender. So, again, the four main contributing factors to acne are abnormal keratinization, excess sebum production, P. acnes overgrowth, and inflammation.
0: Okay, that's an elementary level of acne knowledge at best. I want more details on the pathogenesis.
1: Okay, he's right. Let's talk shop on these a little bit more before we discuss the type of acne lesions. Again, Factor number one is abnormal keratinization, which is caused by two issues, one being that the keratinocytes of the epidermis proliferate too quickly, especially at the edges of hair follicles, and two, the keratinocytes are also more cohesive, so they plug those hair follicles. This forms the microcomedone. It's like filling up a sweaty, sticky dance club past capacity, and the keratinocytes are bumping and grinding, but nobody wants to leave the follicle.
0: O-M-G, Becky. It is so hot and sticky in here. Should we fail? No, we're like totally staying. This party's banging.
1: So then we have factor number two, which is sebum production, which we can't discuss without discussing hormone production. Remember from the very first episode that sebum production is under hormonal control, whereas our eccrine glands that make sweat are controlled by neurotransmitters. So, when it comes to oil production, remember that androgen receptors are located on the sebaceous gland and the outer root sheath. These receptors bind tightly to dihydrotestosterone, aka DHT, which stimulates more sebum or oil production. Since this oil production plays such a large role in acne, it explains why acne shows up more on the sebaceous areas of the face, chest, and back.
0: Okay, okay, so why do I give oral contraceptives to female patients? Do you think I enjoy parents looking at me like I have ten heads?
1: Simply put, since oral contraceptives suppress ovulation, they also suppress the ovaries' production of androgens, so there are fewer androgens in circulation stimulating oil production by the sebaceous glands. So getting back to pathogenesis, we have a plugged follicle making more oil. Then invite in factor number three, our friend Propionibacterium acnes, which leads to factor number four, inflammation. P. acnes is a gram positive anaerobic rod that is part of our normal flora. It was recently renamed Acutibacterium acnes, as if we don't have enough names to remember for everything in dermatology, anyways.
0: And by what mechanisms does P. acnes induce inflammation? Your answer better include some toe like receptors, and which treatments target these toe like receptors? <laughs>
1: P-acnes activates toll-like receptor 2, which are receptors involved in inflammation that are found on the surface of keratinocytes and macrophages. This is important because retinoids prevent activation of toll-like receptor 2 and are thus anti-inflammatory. So, with P-acnes activating macrophages via toll-like receptor 2, we get release of inflammatory mediators like IL-1, IL-8, IL-12, and TNF-alpha. Remember that IL-8 recruits neutrophils, which are the main component of the juicy pustules that we see, and IL-12 promotes our Th1 cells, which lead to more inflammation.
0: And besides P-acnes, what else plays a role in inflammation? With enough
1: oil and debris buildup and inflammation, the follicle eventually ruptures. It's like a baby bomb going off. Since the keratin and cellular debris are foreign to our immune system, we get a brisk inflammatory response.
0: I know your brain can only process four things at a time, but I can think of six other factors that can trigger acne. What are they?
1: Six acne triggers that you should be on the lookout for include one, hormonal or menstrual flares, two, psychological stress, three, cosmetic products, four, mechanical factors such as sports gear, five, medications, and six, diet. Again, six triggers for acne include hormonal or menstrual flares, stress, cosmetic products, mechanical factors, meds, and diet. So let's talk quick about each of these. One, hormonal flares with menses are relatively common in women with acne. These flares classically appear on what we call the beard distribution of women, where they get more lesions on their chin and jawline. But, just a life pearl, don't use the word beard when talking to your female patients.
0: Um, are you implying that I have a beard?
1: Hormonal treatments such as oral contraceptives or spironolactone can be quite helpful for these patients. Then we have trigger number two being stress. Tough to change in one visit, but making patients aware of this can give them a sense of control with their acne. Then we have number three, cosmetic products, which can be anything from occlusive foundations to hairsprays or pomades that leach down onto the forehead and worsen acne in this area. The mineral-based, oil-free, non-comedogenic makeups are what patients should be wearing.
0: Or you can be like good old Dr. Grumpy Pants here and skip the makeup, leave your hair the hell alone and just embrace what God gave you, in my case, ugliness. We can't all wake up looking like Dr. Dude with his rugged good looks.
1: Acne trigger number four comes from mechanical factors, which can be seen with wearing a variety of helmets, chin straps, or even kids always resting their face on the same hand in school. Trigger number five can be a variety of medications, then.
0: And what might some of those medications causing acne be?
1: Medications triggering acne is a relatively uncommon scenario, but it can definitely happen. So here's your mnemonic for the day. A pimple, which are the meds causing acneiform eruptions. And these include A for anabolic steroids, P for prednisone or other corticosteroids, I for iodides or other halogens, M for marijuana or cannabinoids, which have a loose association with acne flare-ups, the second P for progesterone-only contraceptives, L for lithium, and E for EGFR inhibitors, which include cetuximab or erlotinib, which are both EGFR inhibitors used for chemotherapy. Again, for medications causing acneiform eruptions, remember a pimple, with A for anabolic steroids, P for prednisone or other corticosteroids, I for iodides or other halogens, M for marijuana or cannabinoids, the second P for progesterone-only contraceptives, L for lithium, and E for EGFR inhibitors such as cetuximab or erlotinib.
0: All right, all right, enough. You mentioned diet, now I'm hungry. How can diet play a role in acne?
1: When it comes to diet and acne, there is a lot of conflicting evidence out there. I'm going to stay out of the weeds on this, but just know that some of the suggested culprits include milk, and especially skim milk, whey protein, fatty foods, and sweets such as chocolate and soda.
0: But doctor, I need my daily protein shake to keep my figure, and obviously, I'm going to use skim milk so I can keep this six-pack going for summer.
1: The theory is that the high glycemic load causes an increase in insulin levels and promotes higher levels of androgens. Some studies of patients changing from our sweet and fatty Western diet to a more plant-based, lower glycemic index diet can actually improve their acne. Regardless, you can tell your patients to pay attention to whether some of these foods trigger their acne and have them adjust accordingly.
0: Actually, I'm always hungry on this time-consuming, gluten-free diet, but that's another story I would kill for a slice of pizza. And speaking of, Mr. Pizza Face, can you name four different types of acne lesions?
1: How about closed and open comedones, inflammatory papules, pustules, nodules, and cysts? These are important to know because different treatments we'll discuss in a few minutes target different types of acne lesions. Comedones are usually non-inflammatory and divided into closed and open types. Closed comedones are the white or fleshy bumps that have no obvious follicular openings. They become blackheads when there is a follicular opening, which allows air to oxidize the oil and melanins in the comedone to turn them into the black color that we see. We already discussed the pathogenesis behind ruptured follicles, which can lead to red papules, pustules, and bigger nodules and cysts that are certain to leave behind scars.
0: Okay, so speaking of cysts and scars, name four types of scars that can be seen in acne.
1: Four types of acne scars that can be seen include ice pick scars, which are pinpoint depressions, boxcar scars, which are broader depressed scars with a steep side to them, rolling scars, which are poorly defined and give the skin an uneven texture, and lastly, hypertrophic or keloidal scars, which are elevated and nodular. Probably more important than memorizing scar type is being aware clinically that it's occurring. Once acne leaves scars, those scars are there for life unless you're willing to pay out of pocket for a variety of effective cosmetic treatments. The best medicine is preventative medicine, which means stronger systemic treatments.
0: Ah, I see what you did there. Trying to transition your discussion into treatment. I'm not ready for treatment yet. We've just scratched the surface of the clinical findings. Can you name some of the variants of acne vulgaris?
1: So, fun fact for the day, vulgaris is simply Latin for common, so acne vulgaris is the common type of acne that we all know. But regardless, some acne variants worth mentioning include acne excoriae, acne congloblata, and acne fulminans. The classic story for acne excoriae is the young acne patient with anxiety or obsessive compulsive disorder who picks at their acne lesions leading to erosions and scarring. Acne congloblata is severe nodulocystic acne without systemic changes, whereas acne fulminans is severe nodulocystic acne with systemic changes. Acne fulminans classically affects teenage boys and leads to fevers, joint pain, and even osteolytic bone lesions of the sternum and clavicle. These are the patients that need prednisone before starting their isotretinoin. We also start prednisone along with isotretinoin in severely affected acne congloblata patients in order to prevent the occurrence of acne fulminans, which can be induced by starting isotretinoin as monotherapy.
0: Aha. Uh-huh. Acne conglobata and bone lesions? Sounds like a syndrome in the making. Have you heard of Sappho syndrome?
1: There are a whole slew of acne syndromes that we don't have enough time to go through, so just know that there's Sappho, Papa, Pash, Papash, and Haran. A little ridiculous, I know, but they're all relevant. As far as Sappho syndrome, it consists of synovitis, acne congloblata, pustulosis, including pustular psoriasis, hyperostosis, and O for osteitis or inflammation that commonly affects the sternoclavicular joint. What happens in these syndromes is that there's extreme inflammation in the body. So not only do these patients get acne, but we can start to see things like pyoderma gangrenosum, arthritis, and hydradenitis to go with it. So basically, when it comes to severe acne, assess patients for pyoderma gangrenosum, arthritis, and hydradenitis suppurativa. And if they have a few of these components, put the letters together for your favorite acne syndrome. Before we round out the episode and discuss acne treatments, I want to take a brief minute and mention some features of pediatric acne.
0: And how do we categorize pediatric acne? Speaking of pediatrics... I remember when Dr. Binky was in your shoes. I made her cry a time or two, but now she's the finest pediatric dermatologist in the country.
1: We break pediatric acne into neonatal acne from birth to one month, Infantile acne from 1 month to 1 year, mid-childhood acne from 1 to 6 years, and pre-pubertal acne from 7 to 11 years. Again, we break down pediatric acne into neonatal acne from birth to 1 month, infantile acne from 1 month to 1 year, mid-childhood acne from 1 to 6 years, and pre-pubertal acne from 7 to 11 years. We could spend a whole episode on these, and maybe we will in the future, but for now, I want to leave you with a few important knowledge nuggets. Neonatal acne is very common, occurring in 20% of newborns, and it usually self-resolves. The differential for neonatal acne is large, but it includes neonatal cephalic pustulosis caused by malassezia, erythema toxicum neonatorum, aka ETN, then transient neonatal pustular melanosis, aka TNPM. Miliaria, and benign cephalic histiocytosis. Then we have infantile acne from 1 to 12 months of age that is more comedonal and usually more persistent than neonatal acne. From this infantile age up through mid-childhood, before age
0: 7, you must assess kids for signs of androgen excess. If you've spent a minute in clinic with Dr. Chop then you know very well the signs of androgen excess. However, we're talking about kids. What are the signs of androgen excess in children?
1: Signs of androgen excess include pubic hair, testicle or clitoral enlargement, breast development, and increased muscle mass. If you see any of these signs or are concerned for precocious puberty, these kids need an endocrine workup and referral.
0: Okay, let's shift gears and start talking about treatment. Regardless of acne severity, what are some skin care recommendations you should be giving all of your patients? <laughs> ¶¶
1: We've talked a lot about the many contributing factors for acne, so there's a lot to go over here. Step one, every acne patient needs to be counseled on washing their face at least twice a day. And why is this important? Because it removes the oils, dirt, and makeup that clogs up our pores. Patients should wash their face twice a day and after any exercise where they get sweaty. And what to wash with? Gentle cleansers from any of the common name brands are helpful. These are your CeraVe, Cetaphil, Aveeno, Neutrogena, Oil of Olay, etc., etc. It's important to remind them on the importance of being gentle because harsh soaps or exfoliating too frequently causes more inflammation and damages the skin and can lead to more bacterial overgrowth. It also sloughs the dead skin cells off and pushes them into the hair follicles, causing more follicular plugging and more acne lesions.
0: If it were up to me, I'd buy up all that scrubby, beady, bubbly, apricot BS and put it into an incinerator, but no matter, what are some other washers you might recommend?
1: There are also a variety of medicated washes out there that are quite effective. Benzoyl peroxide washes lead the list and can have strengths varying from 2.5% to 10%. Benzoyl peroxide, aka BPO, is antibacterial and also breaks up comedones and has anti-inflammatory properties. It's an important agent for acne treatment because there has never been antibiotic resistance reported against it, and it should always be combined with other topical antibiotic treatments to prevent the development of antibiotic resistance. It's also important to know that benzoyl peroxide will bleach any towels or pillowcases that it contacts, so warn your patients to stick with white towels and linens. Besides BPO, other medicated washes include salicylic acid, which is also comedolytic, and sulfur-based washes, which have mild antibacterial properties and comedolytic properties as well.
0: Okay, what else should you be telling all of your acne patients to be putting on their skin And don't you dare say something like cucumbers or some comedogenic natural mask that's going to turn their face into trench warfare.
1: A daily facial moisturizer with SPF 30 or higher is also important. This is because sun exposure makes redness or dark spots last longer, which we call post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation, a.k.a. PIH. This is especially important for acne patients with darker skin types. Patients should also be warned not to pop, squeeze, or pick at their acne, which leads to worse inflammation and can cause permanent scarring.
0: Okay, now you're going to be a dermatology provider, and you are hopefully going to prescribe effective treatments. I want you to list as many prescription treatment options as you can. We've got to have a toolbox to turn to. What is in this toolbox?
1: When you're seeing patients, you want to assess their acne and put them into one of four treatment groups. One being over-the-counter treatments like the medicated washes we just discussed, two being prescription topical antibiotics or retinoids, three being all the above, plus oral agents like antibiotics, spironolactone, or oral contraceptives, and lastly, four, the patients who need isotretinoin. When it comes to prescription topicals, they come in two flavors, topical antibiotics or topical retinoids.
0: My favorite flavor of all time is gasoline mixed with grit. You don't see me announcing it to the world over some silly podcast, but no matter... So can you name five topical antibiotics in our toolkit for acne treatments?
1: To remember topical antibiotic choices, remember your ABCDEs with A for azelaic acid, B for benzoyl peroxide, C for clindamycin, D for dapsone, a.k.a. axone, E for erythromycin, and S for sulfacetamide. Again, for topical antibiotic choices, remember your ABCDEs with A for azelaic acid, B for benzoyl peroxide, C for clindamycin, D for topical dapsone, E for erythromycin, and S for sulfacetamide. As I mentioned before, topical antibiotics should be paired with benzoyl peroxide to decrease antibiotic resistance. There are also a slew of topicals where the benzoyl peroxide comes combined with the other antibiotics, like clindamycin-BPO combinations, for example.
0: Okay, okay, so how about the topical retinoids? Can you name five of them that are used for acne?
1: Our topical retinoids are our most important treatment for acne because they target three out of the four components of acne pathogenesis that we discussed. Topical retinoids normalize the keratinocyte hyperproliferation that plugs the follicles. They are also comedolytic, and they are anti-inflammatory by blocking toll-like receptor 2. This leaves sebum production to do a less rowdy solo show by itself.
0: I'm all alone. No comb and I'm obese. Just a pile of grease on your all.
1: As far as types of retinoids, two are often found in cosmeceuticals and three are prescription. The two that are often used in cosmeceuticals are retinol and retinal, with an AL at the end. The other three that are commonly prescribed alone or in combination with topical antibiotics include tretinoin, adapalene, and tazeratine.
0: And what is the difference between tretinoin, adapalene, and tazeratine?
1: Tretinoin is a first-generation retinoid with two unique features. One is that tretinoin is inactivated by UV light, so it has to be put on at night. And two, tretinoin is also oxidized or inactivated by benzoyl peroxide, so it should not be combined with topical BPO or used after washing with BPO washes. Next, we have adapalene, which is a third-generation retinoid that is light-stable and is often combined with BPO since it is unaffected by BPO. And lastly, we have tazeratine, which is pregnancy category X and tends to be a little stronger in strength. Retinoids are amazing for acne, but they will get misused 80% of the time by patients unless you counsel them properly. So what do you need to tell them? Let's hear how Dr. Grumpy Pants does it.
0: All right, Cassandra, this retinoid is going to be the best thing you can do for your acne. But you have to remember... It takes at least a couple of months to kick in, so you have to trust me and you have to be patient. You should notice a difference in six to eight weeks, but also know that it can make your acne a little worse before it gets better as it cleanses all that oil and junk out of your skin. And how do you put it on? A little goes a long ways. A pea-sized amount is enough for your whole face. Apply it to your acne-prone areas on your forehead, nose, cheeks, and chin. Be careful around the sides of your nostrils and your mouth. It is not a spot treatment, so if you use it that way, you're wasting your mother's money. As far as side effects, it can cause dry, flaky skin, and you can get sensitive skin from it. But trust me, your skin eventually gets used to it. Two tricks for that dryness. Start out using your cream every other night and build your way up too nightly. And second trick, don't forget to moisturize for crying out loud. You can mix it with your moisturizer, put the moisturizer on afterwards, or put on moisturizer at any point in the day. If you're getting too irritated or flaky, take a break for a day or two. Don't just give up on it. You're going to look better in three months. Do you trust me? good oh and don't get pregnant goodbye
1: all right my friends so this is where i gotta cut myself off and leave the rest for episode part two on acne in that episode we'll discuss the systemic treatments for acne and see a couple of acne patients with dr grumpy pants
0: i like totally like have acne and like this dr grumpy man guy totally got me better you know
1: so thanks again for listening in. I hope no matter what your level of training, this episode gave you some pearls for helping you and your acne patients get clear skin and a more confident look. I'm Logan Kolb. Please join again next time where we discuss part two on acne treatments. Have a great day, my friends. All right, thanks for joining today. I want to thank Dr. Sean for his help with the content, and Dr. K for not only adding clinical pearls, but supporting this podcast from the get-go. I also want to thank Garrett and Dan for their work with editing and post-production, along with our excellent team of students and residents with Dave, Dan, and Sandra, who put together an awesome study guide for each episode that's available at www.grenzonederm.com. And that's with two Z's, grenzonederm.com. If you have any feedback on how we can improve our content, you can contact us through our website or via email at grenzonederm at gmail.com. Also, don't forget to follow us on social media for more helpful mnemonics and quiz questions. Thanks again for listening today. I'm Logan Kolb, and we'll see you next time here in the GrenZone.
0: This episode is copyright 2020 Pro Podcasting LLC, all rights reserved. The Grenzone Podcast is a service provided by Pro Podcasting LLC and is not affiliated with any other service providers.